tonight we are starting a series called Get It that's kind of the next step in defining who we are as a campus. This series is foundational to us as a campus and to Grace Church as a movement. We did a, a series on these values a few months back. If you were part of us during our kind of pre-launch services, we did a series called Epicenter. We were looking at our values um, and it was, it, was, it was a good series. But um, now we're going to talk a little bit about like what our purpose is. Okay? Do you know what Grace Church's purpose statement is? We're going to throw it up on the screen. This is, this is the purpose statement. The vision of Grace Church is to ignite a gospel-centered movement by knowing it, living it, and giving it away. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's our purpose statement. To ignite a gospel-centered movement by knowing it, living it, giving it away. It is the gospel of Jesus. This is what we see our purpose for in the world. To create a movement of people. Not just a campus. Not just a church. But a movement of people who know it, live it, give it away. We want to help people get it. And when we say it, when we say get it, it is the gospel, right? It is the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I hope we're going to talk about the gospel. And I hope to kind of expand maybe, uh, maybe your view, maybe broaden your view a little bit of what the gospel is. Sometimes we could have a very narrow definition of the gospel. I hope to expand that a little bit tonight. Gospel, by the way, is just a, a, it's a Bible word for good news. That's what it means. That's what gospel means. It's like a proclamation of good news. And boy, is it good news. And understanding and experiencing the gospel is fundamental for us to understanding and experiencing knowing it, living it, and giving it away. And that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about know it, then give it, uh, live it, then give it away. It's kind of hard to say fast. No, live, give it away. It's kind of fun to say fast, right? That's what we're going to talk about. So where do we get this from? Why do we call the gospel it? Well, here's what it says in Romans 1. Romans 1 16. One little sentence that's jam-packed with stuff. This is what it says. Paul's writing and he said, and it's kind of the theme of the book of of Romans. Kind of the big picture of Romans. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Can you say that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It, the gospel, is the power of God. It, the gospel, brings us the gift of salvation. It, the gospel, changes our lives right here and right now. And getting it is much more than just going to church. Much more. Getting it is much more than just praying a prayer and getting saved. It's much more than that. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So tonight, here's what I want to do. I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. Um, I want you to learn, to understand, and hopefully, joyfully accept eight words. You think you can learn eight words? Ken, you think you can learn it? Did you just shake your head no? Ken, come on. We could do eight words, right? (laughs) I want to walk us through eight words that I think will explain the gospel, will explain it with some fullness. It's not exhaustive, okay? But I think it explains the very the various components of the gospel, some of which are easy for us to forget and easy for us to neglect. So some of you have never heard this before. 
Some of you have never, have never heard the fullness of the gospel before. Maybe you've heard bits and pieces. Maybe you've heard distortions of the gospel. I want you to listen tonight. And I just want you to consider it. Okay? Just listen and consider it. It's good news. And it's really good news that promises to change your life and my life. Just like it has for people over the last 2,000 years. If you accept it. Okay? Others of you have heard this, or at least parts of it, lots of different times. And you accept it. And you try to live by it. Listen, tonight, don't zone out. Okay? You may have heard the gospel many times. Don't zone out tonight. Okay? But stay with me. I want you to listen to kind of reignite the passion that you feel as you think about the gospel in your life. Because it affects all of our life. And I want you to kind of reignite your gratefulness to the Lord. Try, try to look at tonight with fresh eyes. Okay? And I want you to look at tonight. I want you to, to listen, to learn, so that you can teach other people. If you've experienced this, if, if you are living out the gospel in your life, I want you to listen, to learn, to be able to teach to other people. Right? That's a, that's a deeper way of learning. Right? Because God calls us to be able to explain the gospel to people. If you're a follower of Jesus and you struggle explaining the gospel to somebody, what's wrong? Like, why? Like, what excuse do we have of that? And, and why do we wonder why God's not using us? I want you to, if you can remember eight words tonight, you can explain the gospel to somebody and just wait and see how God uses you, okay? Because I want you to listen to be able to share tonight. So when I think of the gospel, I think kind of categorically in two ways. I think about God and who he is and what he did and what he does. And I think about me and who I am and what I've done and what I need to do. And when you read the Bible, when you open up the very first, first page of the Bible, the first thing that we learn that God does, here's our first word, ready? I'd love for you to write these down. If you don't have a pen, John will throw one at you and you can have it. No, he'll hand it to you, I promise. But I'd love for you to write these things down. Eight words, okay? First word, first thing that we learn that God does in the Bible create. Create. God creates. I've created something before. I, I had this little phase in my life where I thought maybe I had some artistic ability. And so I went, <laughs> this is true, I went and I bought an easel. I, I should do this. I'm going to paint. I bought an easel. I bought some paint. I bought some canvas. And I started to paint. And um, this is what I created. So it's not that good, okay? But, but this is what I created. What do you think of that? I signed it at the bottom. Jeff Martell, number 30, because that was my number. This is the best I could do, guys. This is it. This is all I got. This is what happens when I create. Here's what happens when God creates. This is what it says in, in uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I did a tree that's not that good. He created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind. It, uh, Genesis 1, 26, 27. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all of the wild animals, all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know what Genesis 1, 31 says? 
when he saw everything that he had made. He made everything. Six days, right? He made everything. He sees it, and it was very good. When God creates it, it's very good. No sin, no chaos, no sickness, no death. Unhindered relationship with God. It was very, very good. God did good. The first thing that we do of any significance in the Bible is kind of the opposite. God created, and it was really good. First thing that we do is rebel. Write that down. Rebel. You know the story. It's in Genesis chapter 3. God gave Adam and Eve, the first human beings, free reign of everything. Enjoy. This is my creation. I want you to enjoy it. Enjoy everything that there is except one thing. Remember what it is? One tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With a little help from the devil, you know what they do? They eat from the forbidden tree. They explicitly break the one command that God tells them. Don't do this. That's what they do. And you know what happens? All of creation is affected. All of creation. Not just them. But all of creation is affected. All of creation fell right along with them. It actually says in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation was subjected to the fall and just groans. Like groans in misery waiting for something to get better. Now, sickness and death and frustration and hatred and fighting and war has entered the world. Why? Because of us. And before you stop and go, man, that Adam and Eve, they are such knuckleheads. Why would they do that? If that was me back then, I would never do that. Before you say that, just know that you and I are their descendants with the same tendencies towards sin and rebellion that they had. And in a sense, we were there right along with them. We were their seed, right? We're in them in some way. We're there right along with them. We're all part of the rebellion. And we continue the rebellion every single day since then as we lie and cheat and are prideful and selfish and deviant and arrogant and all of those other things. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? No one is excluded. We're all in it together. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.20 calls us slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. Romans 5.6 says that we're powerless in our sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what we earn from sin is death. And not just physical death there, guys. Think spiritual death. Spiritual death. Spiritual separation from God. Death? What? Like, why would God be so extreme? One of the guys that I really like to listen to, incredible pastor, his name is Francis Chan. He says, this is what he says, great quote. He says, God is the only one who's good and the standards are set by him. Because he hates sin, he has to punish those guilty of it. Maybe that's not an appealing standard. But to put it bluntly, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standards, right? Like, who are we to question? This is how God set it up to be. And whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, our identity comes from Adam. Our identity comes from Adam and Eve. We've been, we're, he's a rebel enslaved by sin, powerless to do anything about it, and so are we. Destined now for death, destined for separation from God. This is bad news, right? The good news, the gospel, starts out with some bad news. And we have to understand the bad news in order to appreciate the good news, right? 
maybe you want to write this sentence down. This is, this is how I kind of put these two things together. It tells me God perfectly created me and I senselessly rebelled. It, the gospel, tells me that God perfectly created me and I senselessly rebelled. That's bad news, right? But the bad news is confronted by good news very quickly. Even though God would have been completely justified in abandoning us and allowing us to just kind of rot in our rebellion, he loved us too much. And so instead, he offers us grace. That's our third word. Grace. You know what grace means? You know kind of the definition of grace? Sometimes you say unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Grace is not getting what we deserve. What we deserve is bad. What we deserve is punishment, right? What we deserve is separation from God. Grace is not getting what we deserve, but instead it's getting what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve is anything good. What we don't deserve is peace, is forgiveness, is relationship with God. That's what grace is. Not getting what we deserve, but instead getting what we don't deserve. Tim Keller, a, a pastor, theologian, another guy I like to read, says this. This is a great quote too. He says, the gospel's this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, yet at the same time we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. Boy, that's true. That is so true. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than many of us ever dared to believe. And I encourage you to think about that. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the depth of sin. In order to appreciate grace, we've got to understand how far we've fallen, right? And yet we're still so loved by God and accepted by Jesus more than we ever hoped. Romans 3.23, remember I said we all sin, right? Romans 3.24 and 26, Paul kind of expands on that and he says, but we're justified by God's grace that came to us because of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. See, whereas we're imperfect, rebellious sinners, Jesus is perfect for us. And as the perfect Son of God, His death covered over, the Bible word is atoned, right? His death atoned for, it covered over all of our sins. It washed Him away separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. Guys, they nailed Jesus to the cross for your sin. I just let that sink in for a second. You, you, your sin, your rebellion, your unrighteousness is what drove those nails into Jesus. That's how much God loves you. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. Another pastor, I, I, he's fallen on some hard times, but his name is Mark Driscoll. He said this, he said, At the center of the Bible is the good news that God treated Jesus the way that we deserved and daily treats us the way that Jesus deserved. Whew. God treated Jesus the way that we deserve and he treats us the way that Jesus deserved. Completely undeserving on our part. Nothing that we could possibly do to deserve it. That's grace. That's what grace is. Understanding grace is a huge, huge part of getting it, right? And we're going to dig, as the weeks go on, we're going to dig into this a little bit more. But we do have a part to play, right? You and I have a part to play. God sent Jesus to take the penalty for our sins. He offers us grace, but we have a responsibility to too. You know what our responsibility is? I like this word. It's trust. Our responsibility 
is to trust. I understand that I have nothing in my own abilities to make my situation better. No self-help, no extreme discipline, no commitment that I could ever make to make my situation better because I'm a slave to sin, an absolute slave to it. My identity is that of Adam. I'm a son of Adam. I'm deeply flawed with nothing that I can do about it. I am desperate for help. Have you experienced that kind of desperation? Like in your life. Think about that. Have you experienced that kind of, like you're in quicksand, right? I've never been in quicksand. I just see it in cartoons and commercials. It's like you're in quicksand and there's nothing that you could do to get out of it. And the more you flail around and try to get out, the deeper and deeper that you sink in. Desperation. But grace is God reaching his hand out to us in Jesus to rescue us. And he promises to pull us out on the solid ground, but we got to trust him. And, and as he's reaching down to us, we have to reach up and we have to grab his extended hand. In biblical terminology, in Bible terminology, trust is the same thing as belief. Trust is the same thing as faith. And it's not just like some one-time decision that you make in your head, but it's a decision that you make over and over and over and over again. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. I don't understand the circumstances, but I trust you. I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you. I don't have any promises, but I trust you. And it involves action, right? Like just like me reaching out of the out of the quicksand and grabbing hold of somebody for help, it involves action. My life changes. Once Jesus pulls me out of the quicksand, I don't let go of his hand. But instead I keep holding on to his hand and I walk with him so I'm safe and secure for the next time that I step into a pool of quicksand. Maybe take a second and write it this way. This is, this is how I put it together in a sentence. It tells me about a radical grace from God that I receive through desperate trust. It, the gospel, tells me about a radical grace from God that I receive through desperate trust. But guys, this isn't where the gospel ends. Like many times, this is where people stop and they go, yes, grace, it's all about grace. Just gotta trust him, just believe, right? That's not it. I got four words left. I'm only four words in here, okay? This is so cool because as I walk with him, no longer do I stay the same old me. I don't stay the same me. He changes me into a better me over time. He transforms, that's the next word. He transforms me into the best me that I could possibly be. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12 is kind of this transition point in Paul's letter. He goes from talking about beliefs to talking about behavior. What we believe and who we choose to walk with, that affects how we act, right? Why? Because the one that we walk with is changing us. He's the one who's transforming us. And so when it says transform, be transformed, that word in the original language in the Greek is metamorpho. Metamorpho, okay? What does that sound like? Sounds like metamorphosis, right? 
That's what it's kind of that's where we get our word metamorphosis. Like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Like, like when a tadpole turns into a frog. And I was reading uh, a guy named Keith Krell, who's a pastor. He's also a professor at Moody. Kind of talk about what this means, what Paul means here to be transformed. And he said this word metamorpho is it's talking about continuous change. So it's not like something that you change and then you revert back. A, a, a tadpole does become a little bit of frog and then become a little bit more tadpole again, right? That would be weird. It just progressively, there's this continuous change. Be transformed. Then he says it's passive, right? Be transformed is passive. Someone else is doing the transforming. God is doing the transforming. We're just being transformed. You know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like, you ever seen uh, the older couples who have been married for a long time, that as they age together and the longer that they've been together, they start to look like each other? You know what I'm talking about? Like you see, you see like, old, yeah, there you go. You see old pictures of them when they're kids and, or when they're younger, they look totally different. And then when they're older, they look like that. And you go, what happened, right? Like they didn't do anything. They just are being transformed to become more like each other. Guys, this is kind of what it's like. Transforming that God does inside of us is kind of like that, but on steroids. God is continually changing you. He's transforming you. Isn't that encouraging to know? Like he's the one working inside of us, changing us as I walk with him, making me more and more like Jesus. But it's not just God. We have a responsibility in this too. You know what our responsibility flip, flip that picture off there, please. That is distracting, isn't it? We we have a responsibility too. Our responsibility is to conform. Conform is kind of a dirty word in our culture, isn't it? Like we talk about, I don't want to conform. I don't want. There's a there's a silly commercial. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a silly commercial about a model, like busting out of his room, and he's like, I will not be who people say I should be anymore. Right? Like we don't want. <laughs> that was my French accent. We don't want to conform to other people's expectations. I want to be me. Listen, flat out, we just got to get over that. We just got to get over that. We are called to conform to God's standards. We're called, maybe standards isn't the right word. We're called to conform to God's ways, right? Like that's what he calls us to be. And listen, this is important. Conforming isn't confining. God doesn't show us his ways to confine us and box us in, right? That's not what he does. Conforming is liberating because when we conform to God's ways, then there's fullness of life. There's joy, there's peace, there's happiness, right? You know, it's interesting. One of the other things that this guy Keith Crow brings out about that word metamorpho, that, that be transforming, is that it's also, be transformed, is that it's also an imperative. You know, an imperative means that it's something that we're called to do. Do this. We have a responsibility in that. See, I choose moment by moment to live according to my new identity. Remember we said that we're born children of Adam. Our identity came from him. And because Adam and Eve chose to sin, we were affected by that. And you and I then have a tendency to sin as well. We're slaves to sin, unable to do anything about it. Well, listen, when we experience grace and when we trust Jesus, God gives us a new identity, right? Romans 5 and 6, if you you want to dig into this deeper, read Romans 5 and 6 this week. The old me dies. The new me is born. This time I'm born in Jesus. My identity is in Christ. Now 
he's my head. I'm a descendant of him. The Bible says that now we're slaves to righteousness. We just need to act like it, right? We just need to act like it. We need to conform to God's ways, to live the way that he calls us to live and that he enables us to live. So, here's a question. Here's a question I ask myself. So, okay, so if I'm a child of Jesus, if I'm in Christ, my identity coming from him, why is it that I still sin? Why is it that I still sometimes act like a child of Adam? And when I do, like, what, what must God think of me, right? Like, what, what must he think of me? Well, it's a good question. We talked last week a little bit about, you know, if we're a Christian for very long, we get our feet dirty, right? We sin, we stumble, we make bad decisions. Well, I, I was reading a book that a friend of mine gave me to read. And the guy was talking about this very thing. And he gave an illustration that was really powerful. And I want to read it to you. It's a page, so it's more than like a sentence here. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's by a guy named Dennis McCollum, who's a pastor at a church in Columbus, a great church in Columbus called Xenos. And this is what he says. So he's talking about identity. Why do we still struggle with sin once we're followers of Jesus? This is what he says. Suppose I have a friend who's a criminal. He's sentenced to 20 years in prison for various crimes and serves the time in one of the harshest dungeons ever. In his stone cell, he learns to scratch lines on the wall to keep track of the days, and he even has to use a bucket in the corner as a toilet. Gross. By the way, this is a little bit gross, okay? It's a little bit graphic and gross, which is how I like it, okay? So here we go. Finally, after 20 years, I pick him up at prison. I insist he come to my house and occupy the guest room while he adjusts to freedom. At home, things don't go progress, don't progress as expected. I find he rarely leaves his room, and before long, I notice a smell coming from the room. Finally, I stop by and I ask to come in. He lets me into his room, and I'm horrified to see that he's been scratching lines on my freshly painted wall, and he's soiled my waste paper basket. What would you say if that was your friend? I know what I'd say. I'd say, hey, pal, haven't you overlooked something? You're not in prison anymore. I would say, uh, I would say the same thing Paul is referring to a passage that Paul says in the passage that they're looking at. You used to do these things when you were a prisoner because you had no alternative. You can still do them. It's possible to do these things even though you're now free. But how incongruous, how unbefitting. Now that you're free, why don't you begin to live as a free person? I could get heavy with him, threatening him with expulsion from the house, but this would be off target. I want him to stop his antisocial behavior, especially the bit with the trash can. But it's clear this person doesn't realize his freedom. Think about this in your spiritual life. It's clear this person doesn't realize his freedom. What a shame if he changed his behaviors because I threatened him without ever realizing the reason and basis for change. God wants us to understand what he's done to our identity. He wants us to experience this change increasingly in our lives. Not through gritting our teeth and and fleshly self-effort, but through the power of his transforming love. That's powerful, right? We've been removed from our prison, but sometimes we act like we're still in our prison because we spent a lot of time in that prison. When we choose to trust Jesus, when we choose to experience God's grace, God gives us a new identity in Christ and he transforms us as we choose to conform our lives to Jesus' ways. I said it this way. If I wrote a sentence, I said it this way. It, the gospel, tells me how good, I'm sorry, how God supernaturally transforms me as I willingly conform to my new identity. 
It tells me how God supernaturally transforms me as I willingly conform to my new identity. And guys, if that weren't enough, there's still, still two more things. And I've got to be quick with these. I realize I'm, I'm running a little bit late here. I've got to be quick. But there's still two more things. And both of these things pertain to the future. The first one, what God promises to do. And this is beautiful. Is restore. Let me just remind you what God says to us in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no No more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Guys, that's a beautiful promise. If you haven't read, actually, if you haven't read Revelation 19 to 21 recently, you should read that again and be reminded of what's to come. We focused a little bit on this last week, too, as we looked forward to the future ministry of Jesus. God is going to restore all things. Remember how good I described when he created everything? He said it was very good, right, in the beginning? God is going to restore things. Guys, I think a very good argument could be made that what he restores it to is going to be even better than the original. We can't forget that. Our job, our responsibility is to hope. It's to hope. How much do you long for that day? How much do you long for the day when God makes everything new? This life, it's not all there is, right? This life could be very frustrating. It could be very painful. It could be very hurtful for us. Do you feel stressed? Do you feel burdened? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel sick of all of the garbage in the world? The lies, the cheating, the pride, the vulgarity, the lust, the injustice that's all around us. Hope. Hope in what's to come. Hope in what God is going to one day do. What he promises us is spectacular. It's spectacular. When you feel beat up, don't forget to look forward. Don't forget to remember what God is going to do. I said it this way. It tells me God will one day powerfully restore all things as I follow him with unbridled hope. It, the gospel, tells me God will one day powerfully restore all things as I follow him with unbridled hope. Guys, that's it. That's it. (laughs) That's the gospel. In 30 minutes, in eight words, that's the gospel. God created, and it was very good. We rebelled, and it was very bad. God loves us so much, and instead of abandoning us, letting us rot in our rebellion... He reaches down and he offers us grace. Our job is to trust. It's to reach up and say, I trust that you will change me, that you will pull me out of my mess, and that you will give me a firm place to stand. 
He promises to transform us. He gives us, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but he gives us his spirit to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit of God changing us to make us more like him as we choose to remember who we are now. I'm a child of Jesus, right? I'm a child of the King. And we choose to conform to His ways. And we look forward. One day He's going to restore all things. I think it's going to be better than ever. It's going to be spectacular. Our job is to hope and to look forward to that day. Guys, this is, this is why we came to Barberton. It is what brought us to Barberton, right? We want to help people get it. We want to help people understand the power of the gospel in our lives. How it changes us. Not one time. I prayed a prayer when I was seven years old. Not one time. But it changes us for the rest of our life. My question to you. God gives us a mission, right? Our mission, go and make disciples. We can't experience the mission until we get it. My question to you is, have you gotten it? Only you can answer that. In your life, have you looked at this and said, this is, I get this. This is what I want. This is who I want. I want to experience the power of the gospel changing me and making me more and more and more like Jesus. And I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. I want to challenge you guys. We don't do this every week, but I really challenge you. Maybe tonight's the night for you. Maybe as you sit here, you go, I don't think I have gotten it. You don't have to wait. Maybe tonight's the night. If you got questions, don't feel pressure from me. If you got questions, we'd love to help. I don't know if we'll have answers, but we'll try and we'll pray with you. God has plans for us right here and right now. We can't just go through the motions. We have to experience His power, experience the gospel. In uh, the end of this series, we're going to do baptisms for the first time, which I'm pretty excited about. I don't exactly know how we're going to do it here. Maybe we'll bring in a blow-up pool. I don't know what we're going to do. We'll do something here. But we're going to do baptisms, and we're going to do it in our services. And so I want to challenge you. If you, as a follower of Jesus, have never been baptized, you should be baptized. And we'll walk you through it. You can contact us. The information's in your program. You can ask for more details. But that's coming. So I encourage you to think about that.